Well, welcome everybody to the latest installment of the Art History Radio Hour. Uh, my name is Jeff Batchen, and every week at this hour, I have the pleasure and honour of uh, being in conversation with a guest where we talk about art history and its vicissitudes. And I've done my best this term to uh, arrange a relatively diverse uh, range of scholars looking at a whole range of different types of types of art history and different types of material. And this week, I'm very lucky to have uh, Professor Dipti Kera with us today. Uh, Dipti is an associate professor in the Department of Art History at New York University and also an associate at the IFA, which is where graduate studies is done at NYU. And she specializes in, uh, well, she's going to tell us what she specializes. Let's call it the art of India to begin with. And then we're going to whittle down to a more, a more specific locale. But thank you, Dipti, for joining us. Uh, when I was looking at your CV, something struck me because I have a similar pattern in my own background, that you actually began with degrees in architecture and design and then only subsequently shifted to art history. What what made what made you want to shift from designing and building to studying, uh, you know, at an academic level? Uh, that's a great question to start with. Firstly, let me thank you and the History of Art Department at Oxford for this invitation. As I was saying earlier, I've re I've really enjoyed some of the conversations for uh, the way in which you've been able to draw out some of these smaller and bigger questions for art history from very people having very you know different journeys perhaps. And so my journey, as you noted, started in an um, architecture school, and I. Um, I actually was working as an architect in the best place possible, according to me. I was working as an architect after I finished my degree in Goa, and I was uh, uh, having a time of my life <laughs> because of what that city is and what it offers, like what its history has been, which has been extremely intercultural, very localized, excellent food, excellent architecture. And the firm that I was working with, um, a, a group of architects, really focused on thinking about this particular history and the history of the built environment, both in terms of thinking of preservation projects, of readapting some of the old Goa houses, which are a very, uh, you know, very, one can call them eclectic, but also like very precisely mixed houses for various kinds of patrons from the Portuguese who settled there to the local Goans who were kind of traveling across different worlds um, in the Indian Ocean. So one, thinking about the question of adaptation of historical architecture and urban precincts, and two, thinking about construction technologies and local building material, especially the red laterite stone from which much of the building happens there, and thinking in terms of like, local low uh, cost building modes, if you will, at various, um, for various kind of scales of architecture. In that sense, tying also into this entire kind of 1960s, 70s, post-independence India, thinking about the question of low cost housing and Laurie Baker was an architect who really was a steward of that. And so these were students of Baker. Um, so this was an, uh, uh, this was an office where there were architects and draftsmen on the payroll, um, and you had carpenters on the payroll and construct, you know, masons on the payroll, and every project was a turnkey project. 
that is we we were we were working with the in-house staff so one would spend say three days a week on the drafting board i learned architecture you that gives you a sense of how ancient i am like we had one computer station where we just embarked on to digital in terms of thinking about architectural drawings on the computer uh, and you know spending two or three days on site sometimes laying out arches like you know really getting to know um, the material so this question of how you adapt historical architecture for contemporary design uh, was like really at the core of what this practice was and how do you think about it for a variety of publics so in that process i found myself really drawn to research and i found that with architectural practice at any given point you know fairly soon one had to stop and say okay what is the design solution for it where are we going so that's where i kind of realized that my um kind of draw was in research and it's not that i had a direct route into art history from there because uh, honestly like i did not have any exposure to art history given there i was you know what my um schooling was and the space that i came from and the space for the humanities in some ways was was not something that i knew uh, in in a way that i know now as a curricular as a discipline right um and so from there i kind of followed and went to this program uh, which kind of looked at south asian design and architect uh, you know history for uh, people who were practitioners architects sculptors painters who were interested in the question of um history as a practitioner so that kind of like uh, got me into that world uh, and uh, got me actually then thinking more in terms of historic preservation um museums uh, history museums old buildings as museums um yeah that led me then later to museum anthropology again not art history uh, because i uh, i was coming from that space of the built environment in some ways right and but so the went, yeah but you, but you ended up in colombia colombia in new york yeah. how, how, why there so i came for my museum anthropology degree to colombia and i was in anthropology in museum anthropology thinking about um questions of heritage thinking about how anthropology defines um anthropology and archaeological anthropology in that sense defines museums and stakes of museums as i was embarking on those projects and thinking about contemporary heritage landscapes in some ways reflecting on the work that i had been doing with some of these museums post my first kind of masters and inroads into um historical studies uh, my interest became even more historical because i was questioning some 20th century narratives that took me into 19th century colonial narratives and that kind of and the continuities in those as 20th century heritage la landscapes are shaped and that led me to the question then okay what were the other competing narratives how is it possible to decenter what was going on what are the sources that we go to so that kind of took me more into art 
history and I did my PhD in art history at Columbia, but it wasn't uh, a, a, like, as you can see, it was a circuitous journey. And even at that stage, I was, um, this question of disciplines was very much, um, perhaps like I can now, um, I, I can now verbalize it, think through it, but I had like this very interesting scenario when I was to start my PhD in art history. I was actually considering a PhD. I had three choices. I had, I could go for a PhD in anthropology and material, archeological anthropology at Chicago. I could go to Berkeley for a PhD in architecture and I could go to Columbia for a PhD in art history. So I kind of was like stuck between three great institutions, three great, great cities and three different disciplines. So, um, so that kind of reflection in some ways um, has been part of my journey and I think has been part of how my projects have been shaped uh, mm. henceforth as well. Yeah. And I guess by the time you finished your PhD, you become a specialist in painting rather than architecture. I was particularly struck by things written about, uh, I guess I'd call them invitation scrolls. I know there's a specific uh, Hindi word for it, but yeah. invitation scrolls, uh, which I think from your writing you suggest have previously been somewhat marginalised in the, if you like, in the way that Indian painting has been written about. Could you perhaps describe one of these scrolls for us, uh, and then I'll be I'll ask you why they're significant. You think? Sure, sure. So. Uh, and I'm also happy to dwell upon that painting versus architecture question. Yeah. For me, kind of it was a little bit about like getting into this questions of historical experiences of spaces, genres, one of them being these kind of invitation letters, which enable you to then think through these sources for histories and experiences of the built environment. So in that sense, like, um, yeah, by many, I'm now perceived or categorized as a, you know, we all inhabit multiple categories, but as a scholar of Indian painting. But for me, it's interesting in some ways, like I started and even at times now, like I find like I'm an interloper in that, uh, in those boundaries, because my questions didn't start with questions of painting per se. Um, but that's a different question. Um, track because I feel in some ways it's it's always the inter in between spaces and the interloping that has uh, attracted me the most and in that sense these invitation objects are also those kind of boundary objects that do not fall into any category so these letters they are called Vignapti Patras which quite literally translates as Vignapti meaning invitation Patra meaning letter Sometimes they're called chitralekha, so that's a painted letter. And these are letters that were sent by mercantile collectors, by merchants in the space of a bazaar in cities all over uh, the subcontinent, uh, west, um, west, north, east. Uh, I haven't been able to track as many in the south, but it's just a question of more research. Um, and from small towns, like from folk towns, like Diu, Surat on the Western Indian Ocean, to desert towns, towns within Northwestern India, um, to the east, like from Calcutta, like so from 
in very much in the at the heart of high colonialism in the 19th century from Bombay, from 19th century Bombay. And these were invitations that were sent by merchants who belonged to uh, the Jain community. Jainism is a, is, is a religion that has a very long history, as long as Buddhism in the subcontinent. Um, and the Jain, most of the people who belong to the Jains are in professions that are related either to them being bureaucrats or being artists or being merchants, um, of being, uh, you know, scribes, historians, monks, so on. And so they, and, you know, they played a very key role in the mercantile wealth that was generated in the bazaars of India with their trade, trade that was there across the Indian Ocean world. So they sent these letters to important monks of the Jain community, asking them to come to their city during the next monsoon season and settle in their city for three or four months. So visually, these are like long scroll objects. Since they should, are taking... should mention that some of them can be as long as 70 feet in length. Yes, some of them can be as long as in seven. A very big letter. <laughs> yeah, very big letters, which usually have the textual letter on one end, and the visual letter is a praise, both the textual and the visual is a praise for the city, uh, and the visual letter, you know, different artists take different approaches from different cities. They make connections to painting practices. They map out the cities. Um, there are certain genre, you know, certain vignettes that are expanded upon based on what they decide to do. Uh, but it's the space of the bazaar that is certainly uh, celebrated. As And so in some ways, it's like this very interesting object, which I think really strikes home for us now. At least for me, the project has been changing and expanding as we've gone through this pandemic. Because these are letters which are trying to tell these monks that you have to undertake this travel. We know that this travel is very arduous because these are monks who only walk. So they're going to walk for months to arrive at this place. So you have to convince them that this is a place worth coming. And, you and what's, really, and what's yeah. the advantage of having the monk come? I mean, what, so, why, yeah. why are merchants so concerned to have the monk there? That's a great question, and that was that has been at the heart as I trace these multiple letters. Uh, I call them letters from the local bazaar for a new project that I'm working on, uh, which is what they are. Um, is that a the monks might be receiving letters from different places at the same time, right? So I've been able to track that, even though I haven't been able to track which the decision they took, where they ultimately went in each case, when I have these examples of competing letters that are there. Um, and the advantage of them coming is from what you can, uh, what one can gauge is that it's very historically specific in each case. At a generic level, it certainly would transform the entire political economy of that city because with monks would come other merchants would come, other pilgrims. You would have this entire kind of setting up of this space on the frontiers of the city, at the border of the city. So in some ways, it changes, it would change the entire political economy of the city. It would change the demographic of the city. 
Mm. Uh, it would bring prestige to the city. And what I've been able to track is that in mo from most places, these letters have been sent at very critical points in the, in the you know, how the po political economy of the city is shifting. So for example, this 70 feet letter that you're referring to, which was sent by the local merchants of Udaipur in 1830, has been was sent precisely at the time when the Udaipur agency, Udaipur is a town in Northwestern India, was, um, was abolished. And that is when the British had been able to bring the bring Udaipur within a larger um, administrative unit, their independence had been entirely curtailed. Um, and so you can very clearly see uh, what is going on when you look at the letter, because you can see that these there are as many as 30 merchants who are signing these letters in different handwritings. And they're saying like, of course, this is the best place. You can see, means you can see it's a 70 feet long letter. So it's saying like, there can't be anybody better than us. But <laughs> the point is, it also says like, but when you come, that is when this place will change. And what's interesting is that in this letter, like in many letters, but in this letter, it's very precise. It actually imagines the time in the painting when the monk would arrive and where he would set up his entire darbar or his gathering on the outskirts of the city. And the artist actually maps it in a way that that particular space is absolutely opposite the new residency of the British agent that has been set up. He kind of creates a competing vision between them and kind of paints in there that the monk setting, which he imagines will happen in 1831, is, is got a larger group of people, including the British resident who's going, who's kind of in a procession going towards it. Uh -huh. Now, on its, when this becomes really interesting is, you know, when I'm talking about these questions of borders, right? These questions of margins. So A, when you look at this archive, along with the letters that are being exchanged between the Udaipur court and the British residency and the main, um, you know, kind of British India company officials in Delhi, you read this anxiety about the political economy of the city, who is lending money to whom. And in fact, you find that the merchants who send these letters are the ones who are, who are, who are lending money even to the British, who are lending money to the court. And so you can see that it's actually participating in a different genre of letters and diplomacy and questions of the bazaar as well. If you look, if you start looking at it along with like the court painting, then you're seeing like in some ways what the artist is doing and changing the painting. Now, these kinds of scrolls in that sense, if you were to look at them coming back to your question of history of Indian painting, then they would be just seen as, oh, this is not like the best object. These are scraps. It's not yeah. the best painting. What is going on here? But that is exactly what, um, that exactly is at the heart of the various kind of conversations I'm trying to bridge. So that just physically, how would the monk receiving such an invitation scroll, you know, physically see it? Because if it's 70 feet, I presume it's, you know, as a scroll wound up. I mean, when you unscrolled it, 
is there a temporal element to it as well? I mean, in other words, you said that the the painting imagines when the monk has arrived. Mm -hmm. but is that the last thing the monk sees at the end of the seventy feet? And, and yeah. How does it? How does the temporal and spatial unfolding of the scroll, you know, interact? Yeah, that's a that's you know that's a, a really important question and one that has some answers, but I don't think it's possible to find all of the answers for that. So, for example, I've dwelled a lot and I continue to think through it with the various examples and as this research. Uh, continues is that what is the directionality in which the receivers would have seen it? Yeah, do you so, read the, Do you read the letter first, or do you start at the painted end, <laughs> work towards it? So, so the thing is that with this letter, I, for example, we actually have the address of where the letter was sent when the scroll is. Um, you know, when it's a scroll, when it's not unfurled. So that at least gives me a very important clue that that is the way in which it was first, um, that is the mode in which it was carried, right? So mm -hmm. if we, that doesn't mean that after it was unfurled the first time or many times, so that was the mode in which it was again scrolled back, right? So there's that entire kind of, dimension to it. If we are to go by how the artist would make them, it's very clear that the artists start with the uh, with the with painting certain, you know, iconographic and auspicious symbols at the beginning of the letter, then they depict the city and then you have the textual letter. But if we think about where the address is, um, then in some ways you are seeing that the um, the recipients likely saw it in this opposite way. So they're first seeing the signatures of the merchants, then they are seeing the letter, but they are kind of like seeing it backward the very first time that they open it, right? Mm. And and then they are seeing the entire city uh, that goes. And so in some ways, like I, I think through that a lot, that in some ways you need to think through both of those directionalities and what that does to this question of temporality, because in some ways they are seeing the domain that they would establish when they would arrive. You know, there's also the dimension of when they would arrive the following year. Um, first, before they would see the the space of the court or the bazaars or so on. Um, but in kind of like thinking through this, for the very first time, um, I I actually created a facsimile of the scroll for myself yeah. because I could handle it only in, uh, you know, I could see it only within uh, three feet, um, you, you know, slices and photograph it within three feet slices. So yeah. I then kind of created the facsimile. I still have that. And, you know, I laid that out in trying to understand it, but that's how these questions really kind of came to the fore. I mean, I was, I was wondering because of the physicality of a scroll that it kind of replicates a processional experience of the city as if the monk could already imagine as the scroll unrolls a procession through the city. I mean, there's something quite physical about scrolls as opposed to, you know, paintings. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's something which I think about as this project has expanded uh, means I as I said I call it letters from the local bazaar and in terms of methods I actually think of it as 
uh, unfurling scrolls of mobility and mm. scraps of time mm. in the global eras of art history. And by that, uh, of course, I am making a case for a variety of mobilities in, you know, because this genre enables me to enter the time period, say, from almost circa 1400 to 1900. So it's also something which kind of breaks what we think of as uh, chronological periodizations, right? Yeah. Um, and two is that I'm quite conscious that what kinds of scraps of time does it reveal? Mm. And then I say, uh, and what does it mean to write art history in this global era of art history from these kinds of scraps of objects, right? Mm. Um, but I'm also writing an art history from scraps in a time period where you're seeing the rise of a certain globalization or a certain globalism where it's distinct from the globalisms between say circa 1200 and 1500. This is what kind of, this is the globalism that then uh, is when your commercial networks are becoming into your imperial networks, into your colonized uh, mm. networks, right? I want, so this, I that to ask you about that because you mentioned that the colonial governor or whatever the official word was uh, is in, is in, included in the scrolls mm. cityscape. But was the invitation to the monk an effort to provide a kind of power balance to the colonial presence? So that, were these kind of counter-colonial objects as well then? Absolutely. Means that's what I find over and over again, because not all of them are, uh, not all of them have necessarily procession scenes, uh, but for example, one which is sent from the port town of Dew on the uh, Gujarat coast, Dew was one of the most important uh, port cities before the rise of Surat as, as a more well-known port city. Um, and there you, what's really fascinating is that at the end of the painted letter, you have a juxtaposition of the monk who would arrive, but you have the uh, depiction of the Portuguese uh, merchants who have already arrived and who are at the mouth of the ocean. So in some ways you have this entire displacement of what the threshold of these letters usually are. And it's interesting that the, the written letter has this entire poetry where it's talking about the wealth of the city from the various kinds of people who are there. So in a way they are being used to entice the monk to come. Uh, but it also then makes a huge point about that the wealth of the city is something that is tied very much to the kind of deeds it performs in other spheres. And it's for those deeds that you need to be present here. So you have these ways in which value to, uh, to the question of mercantilism is also something that is kind of very much at the heart of what is going on. And again, if you track it, when that particular letter is sent in 1666, it is sent again at a point where you have a very important shift in the political economy of the city that is taking place. Letters that are sent in 1795 from Surat are being sent 
exactly at a time when there is a big riot that has taken place in the city that the British are trying to uh, control that they, you know, which is on the question of who has mercantile control at that time and what is the, uh, uh, you know, what is it that the local merchants are able to assert. So there's a very, so there's this conversation which is going on in multiple spheres. And that's the reason I think this, these kind of vernacular archives, and I mean that in at various levels, is what I think is at the heart of that, how do you write the art histories of this period? What do they come in, how do they come in conversation with the kind of maps and the kinds of more elite objects that we always look at to think about mobility and to think about other kinds of questions? Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing that you make clear in your analysis of these scrolls is that they offer multiple sensory experiences. And indeed, the senses or sensory perception is the focus of your 2020 book, The Place of Many Moods. And in this book, if I could just sketch it out, you, you look at the way certain paintings made in northwestern India conjure moods, emotions and sentiments. So the first thing that struck me when I saw the theme of your book was, well, this is another example of sort of affect studies, which seems to have swept over our field in the last 10 years or so. So I'm sure you must have been worrying about how do I enter that almost global conversation now about what art history should do with the, the experience of affect and mm -hmm. how, but how do you deal with it that still recognizes and acknowledges the specificity, the localism of your particular examples? So I'm just wondering how, how did you negotiate the sort of precisely this global and local uh, relationship that you just described uh, that your invitational letters also engaged in? Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I, um, you've really read my work carefully. You're getting to the precise. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an exam exactly, Dipti, but. <laughs> yeah, but I'm like, oh, these are exactly the things I want to talk and think about. Like, I'm not saying it's your exam or my <laughs> exam. I'm wondering. <laughs> well, I was, I was interested because I know, I know that you stress in the book the sort of specificity of this local painting tradition. But on the other hand, you're obviously in conversation with sort of a larger shift in the field. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, means I think, you know, at the heart of this book, as you say, is tracking this category through through these localisms that are very powerful that shift the field of painting in this through this particular what the artists of a particular city do, but what how their work travels around and shifts practices across northern western India. Um, so it's this category that they are formulating and iterating in like hundreds and hundreds of works where the mood of a place is something that becomes dominant in how they um, tackle a variety of subjects from uh, portraiture, from invitation letters, from, um, you know, from um, genealogical histories, just a variety of genres. This mood of a place is what, pictorial mood of a place is what structures it. And so that's one kind of end of it. And the other end of it is that I'm trying to make a place in some ways for many moods to get to your uh, question about the specificity of it and the conversations we need to have on questions of affect or sensory tone. Now, if I go to mood of a place, the word for it that is used is bhav. Bhav translates as feel, mood, emotion. 
it also translates as what is the feel or emotion that leads to then a lasting aesthetic taste about something. Uh, I, when I was reading Wikipedia, always a good source, they also <laughs> translated as becoming, and I was struck by how a word that can mean emotion and mood can also mean becoming, and I wondered if that is a significant part of why in India this is an important aesthetic you know, concern. Yeah, yeah. So it's and the concern itself is something that in philosophical terms, intellectual terms, literary terms can take you back to archives from the third century onwards. So there's a very long intellectual history and it is seen as the term that uh, that is both a uh, both a category, but is also, as you say, very much about an act of feeling and transformation of both the self, not necessarily just individually, but in a collective, if you will. So it's also like a theory of reception of art in some ways where the question of becoming and who is feeling is what starts defining the aesthetic project, if you will. Mm -hmm. So it's we have a very long intellectual conversation around it. It seems it seems to have structured all kinds of arts. Um, but then when we start thinking in terms of how specifically in terms of mediums, how do you think about the conceptualization and interpretation of these kinds of concepts and how they are taken to different directions? It's not as if we are having that entire history written down in a source. So you're kind of piecing that. I was going to ask you how I was going to ask you, how does one know how a viewer in 1830 or in the 18th century, how they feel when they look at a painting? How does one know those things? So, uh, so A is like you find these scribal commentaries that are there often on the back of paintings that I look at where they, where they describe the, what is depicted as depicting the mood of a place, time, uh, event, a certain kind of experience. Uh, you have this in, in, in enough number of works to know that that is the mode in which it's being described. In fact, the first time that terminology is used, it's used in 1610 for in an invitation letter that is sent from Agra where you, uh, that is how the pictorial project of the letter versus the scribes writing of the letter is is related that if you want to get a sense of the mood of this place, then look at the artist's letter. So that's a very kind of clear signaling out there. Um, so we have those kind of fragments that are there, but how we, to me, in any kind of affect studies or any kind of kind of um, fleshing out of the question of emotions and mood and what it does is to historicize it, right? Uh, and that is the kind of historicization that, to some extent, Indian painting has been a little bit, uh, the field of Indian painting has, has, has been doing it, but, but it's been still fairly recent. Because to do that historicization, you need to step away from the painting as well. And you need to be able to track it with these multiple kinds of sources, whether it's literary sources, whether it's other kinds of political documents, whether it's other paintings, to think that, okay, then what is the precisely the work of a certain mood that is being asserted over and over again, say in a time period in one case between 1746 and 1751, that what kind of specific work is it doing? So in that sense, 
that has been my methodology. And does that mean, can I, can I ask you, does that mean that certain pictorial conventions can induce one mood in, at one point in time and a different mood in another point in time? Entirely. So uh, you have, in that sense, conventions um, that are there, say, for example, the mood of the monsoon or the mood of spring is something that is very celebrated. Uh, now, uh, you know, I'll give an example from the mood of the monsoon. Uh, if one is to think about the mood of the monsoon entirely from aesthetic sources, how it's a celebrated season in terms of love and longing and all of that, then uh, that is very helpful to think about the painterly effects and how paint painters are creating the, these modes. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we start thinking about it, let's say in relationship to the specificity of a place where how did the monsoon environment matter for that place to actually function as a territory. Um, then we start arriving at the precarity of the monsoon and why it was valued in a certain way and why the monsoon of a place was made into such a big theme uh, and that it was this monsoon that uh, was sustaining something was made into such a big theme. So A is when we have to go to different so architectural and environmental methodologies, but also other historical sources, which actually are coming from the ground up from these traveling monks who are like writing that, oh dear, the monsoon this year is like so bad. And still this king hasn't done something or still the merchants have tried to fleece the people. So you then start getting to the historical specificity of why a monsoon in that sense, the aesthetics of it, the political economy of it, the historical emotion of it, is playing out at specific times. So, okay, let, let's talk then, by what means does a painter evoke a particular mood? I mean, is it iconographic? If you wanted to, if you want to evoke a particular mood, you paint a monsoon. If it was in the West, you'd be looking at color as a kind of, there's an assumption about a certain emotional states, you know, uh, related to certain kinds of use of certain kind of color. But, but in, in Indian painting, how, yeah, by what means do painters evoke particular moods? So iconographic is one way. So yeah. the iconography of the monsoon would include peacocks and would include elephants, you know, would, in, would include, and these were all actually defined as um, Udipanas, that is, that these were the underlying factors that would lead to an emotion of joy in the monsoon, which you can then see through the subjectivity of non-humans or the becoming of non-humans as well. Uh, but painterly effects play a very, very important role in kind of like capturing that feeling of a monsoon, of a cloud bursting, or how the texture of water and rain can be very different. Um, in spring, in that sense, like the kind of exploration you have of uh, roses and lotus flowers and this kind of red powder for which is used, the gulal that is used for spring festivals. And so you find painters like really making paintings that are um, that are a commentary in that sense on color, on rung itself, which is the word for color, which is again a verb as well in terms of that it colors your mood. But is, so is the color indexical rather than symbolic then? Yes, 
and in some ways like again i feel that uh, there is an entire discourse on the relationship between color and mood that is uh, that is now unraveling in a variety of studies uh, and in some ways taking off from the earlier histories around some of these uh, questions where there was only a, a a kind of a general symbolic uh discussion around it because you had say for example the red color used often as the background uh of these arch bowers where you had the meeting of the lovers and related to the erotic uh experience the shringara rasa so then there was this kind of discussion the of this one to one mapping if you will of color and emotions and moods and it's not like that is not there but it's i would say that that is too um it's too little and it's changing and it has to be more specific than that mm-hmm. um, you also have a conversation if you're talking about how they evoke mood at least what i have found is uh, in terms of the conversations artists establish with um, contemporaneous poetry uh, and some of that poetry may not be inscribed per se uh but there are ways in which there are overlapping tropes that enable you to think about how uh moods attached to places or times or seasons are evoked in that sense uh how the question of the sensory if in one medium is about sound iteration rhythm uh you know how memory is formulated how does it stick with you how they engage that in terms of manipulating scale and painterliness so there's that as well um so yeah i would say that in my work i found that the components and the constituents can um can be stretched in multiple directions and in some ways you have to get to the specificity of each uh conglomeration of things you put together to be able to extract that question of mood and that's the reason you have to go across medium and across um, time periods as well to be able to then get to that specificity um when i'm reading you when i was reading cursorily your book i uh was struck that that the that the audience for these kinds of paintings seemed to be elite men were these paintings also made for women i mean is there a are there women's moods if you like that were yeah 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 and in fact means there are um there are definitely you know women are protagonists in how many of the moods especially related to the question of uh, the question of both um unite you know the question of love and longing in some ways is what is highlighted uh it's happening in slightly different genres uh but you know there's some very interesting new research that is trying to think about uh that are some of these um a like to think that are some of these paintings which are emphasizing moods of women and to think from their perspective and not just to think in terms of idealized women that that they are the key uh patrons of many of these works that they are the key um consumers of many of these works in do, you know do we it, have evidence do we have evidence that they are key consumers yeah yeah means i think that's the we are finding that evidence uh, and i think 
uh, one way that I've been actually entering it with a group with a new group of works um, is that I've uh, started actually uh, focusing on the figures of the musicians and the dancers and how they appear in these elite settings when the consumption of these moods are taking place uh, and how they are the ones who are creating these moods in that sense uh, and to uh, because of the repetition of some of these figures that I've been able to find within a very tight group of things between 1761 and 1767, I'm actually now able to get into a history of thinking from uh, the thinking from the perspective of these very specific depictions of these specific dancing girls that are there. Um, you know, dancing girls is one way to s describe them. Um, but they are the ones who are really kind of uh, holding that mood together. They are the ones who are crossing social boundaries. They are the ones who are, um, you know, in some ways holding musical knowledge together and shifting the mood of an assembly as well. And there's very good work on this by Catherine Shawfield, uh, who's a historian of music at uh, King's College in London. So I'm able to build on that by looking at these specific case studies. So there's a lot happening in terms of thinking through these specific case studies. Um, well, I'll ask you, one of the things that you say is that to appreciate these paintings, a viewer had to become proficient in the art of sensing. How, does, how, did, how did one become so proficient? I mean, did you have to be trained to appreciate these nuances? Uh, that is the sense we get, right? Because that is the sense we get from the deeper histories of how um, connoisseurship for elite male uh, men and women was something that was part of becoming their uh, political, ethical self in that sense. And that's um, discussed in a in kind of a variety of genres of writing, but you also see that kind of enacted through these conventions that are used for painting. Um, and, and I think in that sense, it's the iteration of those conventions in some ways where you see that displaying that becoming uh, is something which is really elevated. It's interesting when you get out of the court as well to some of the mercantile material or some of the like the low brow material, then again, you see how that sensing self is something that is used, is depicted to make a certain kind of point. It actually becomes very, very important in the 18th century. You know, Rosalind Hanlon, who is at Oxford, has done some excellent work on this where she actually talks about uh, becoming this kind of a male elite was key in the 18th century political scenario as uh, you had the Mughal Empire decentralizing, not so powerful, you had several regional players and how were they kind of asserting their authority and what was the role of, um, what was the cultural terrain um, and the aesthetic terrain that was equally important to be able to enter certain political um, networks or certain boundaries or to assert themselves in that sense. So it's, it's very comparative to the larger 18th century story as one might think about it from various locales. So that's another conversation that I'm very, very interested in, which also kind of marks 
which is also like the the reason one is getting into the question of place of many moods right not just the mood of a place because the time period that i'm talking about if one is thinking from the question of landscape then the mood that is told through british landscapes which circumscribes or, or has largely circumscribed the study of depiction of place within south asia and many many other colonized places um there it's a different kind of it's the mood of the sublime it's the mood of uh, desolate spaces the mood of ruination which has its own poetics and politics and embodiment that is ongoing uh, so in some ways through this archive i'm also able to talk about the place for many moods at that time period to think through it so that's how it becomes part of the important territorial story that is unfolding as well at the same time in which landscape and place and the mood of a place is at the heart of that political story okay i want to ask you more but i just want to remind our audience that if they themselves have questions for dipti they're welcome to add one in the chat and i will pass it on to her and we'll uh, interrogate us some more but okay i'm very interested in the politics of mood so these paintings these sort of sensate paintings how did they function politically it sounds like they helped uh, affirm an elite group in their sense of self in their sense of self but did they have other kind of political uh, agency as well how were they used for example yeah so from what we see that this their subjects become it seems that uh, the question of territorial assertion is something that is central to them territorial assertion in terms of what are the places that are featured and what are the moods of those places that are then iterated in different time periods uh so and so in that sense as well like you know the letters that we were talking about those are very useful because they are also telling us how this concept was taken outside of the space of the court how it had a valence there in order to make an important territorial political claim of what is possible so this question of temporality that what is being depicted in them is about the here and now but because they are constantly also kind of pulled in directions of tropes and idealizations in some ways there's also like this aspirational aspect of of that historical moment that is embedded in them so you know so territories are proclaimed in terms of say for example through the places that are depicted say you know certain lake palaces in the center of a lake that are highlighted because that is where you are able to um create a certain kind of network from where you can be looking out to anybody uh, specific temples specific landscapes specific lakes hills in 1810 a journey journeys through two specific temples that take place uh, in the context of the british darbar that has already declared that shift in territoriality in 1830 and so why then going to pilgrimage sites outside becomes important but also um why kind of painting them at a certain scale by an artist none other than ghasi who is someone who is painting for the british colonial agents making the architectural drawings that they demand for their histories that are being written 
and also shifting this entire kind of like how can he mine moods again to claim territory for this king there's that going on it so i think that is completely part of the story which is always the case in any kind of assertion of knowledge or territory we may think that we may you know the question of emotions and subjectivity is out of it but you know that's a conversation about embodied visions that we've been having for a very long time uh, but i think it's entangling these different embodied visions to think about the question of territoriality in aesthetics is what we've not been having enough and so i think those are the discussions to think about the comparisons to think about the connections to think about the entanglements in some ways we have a question dipti from one of our dphil students uh, hi dipti thank you for coming i really enjoy your work perhaps building on jeff's current question on the politics of mood you cite sarah is it ahmed yeah uh, in the introduction to your book and i was wondering what you thought about her philosophy's applications to art historical practice or just your thoughts on her work in general yeah i uh, thanks for that question and thanks for reading my work um you know emmet's work is very very helpful to me uh because she um she actually talks about that capacity of mood to go to historical spaces experiences grievances uh and she talks about it and thinking about it to 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 think about marginalized um feelings uh, and grievances as i said uh, but she also she really emphasizes the question of mood work right and mood work in that sense always being about creating a certain kind of a collective uh, that's how mood works a certain kind of a collective feeling which then in some ways has the ability to push certain things forward right even if we are thinking so in that sense if we are thinking about art history and we are thinking about say how uh, you know the 2020 the summer of 2020 tapped on to the streets in the us the george floyd moment or we are thinking about how that tapped into the 2015 cape town moment uh you know as uh, as statues were toppled right um and so in that sense it's it's that layering that thickness of collective moods right and it's that kind of mood work that then enables uh you to push something in the local ground of a place so that is something which i find very very useful to think with uh, and to think this with the specificities of that through my own archives how they are de- de- devising some of these things to think about the capacity of these objects in that sense um with of course you know with with very specific sources but also in terms of thinking about the historiography of the field and how it goes through these ebbs and flows and it's not like we have we've had various kinds of radical moments and how are they different from the one before and what is the mood that enables to then push it 
further so that you take it a step further so i don't know if that directly answers your question but perhaps it gives you some sense of how i find um how i find these kind of conversations need to happen across disciplines through the specificity of different kinds of archives and time periods uh but it's interesting that you're kind of talking about, yeah. you're sort of talking about a philosophy of mood almost by the sound of it which can be conveyed across different fields we have another question uh from again you talk about and you'll have to correct my pronunciation bav but you don't talk about rasa and the rasta to rasa as it were is there a reason yeah um that you, you could explain the question uh dipti but you also have to come back on screen now uh yeah i know something happened as i was trying to, to go up the, the question and then i i tried to yeah come back okay i'm back here so uh, yeah so thanks for that question i think i got your i was trying to look at your name but then i didn't do well in going between the screens so um yeah so rasa you know translates as aesthetic taste and rasas of course been seen as the center of defining aesthetics right now the reason i talk about rasa less is because of two things one is that as rasa was formulated in the 3rd 4th century and as the discussions continued you know in the long durée to the 10th 11th century so on there was there was the systematization of rasa of types of rasa of thinking about the rasa of love thinking about the rasa of fear and so on and so forth um and but in if one starts thinking through the kind of written sources and literary sources that we have from the 16th 17th century onwards the interest is not that much in classification and systematization but in exemplification uh you know this is traced very well by uh the late scholar alison bush uh and so it's in this ex- exemplification and the feeling of rasa that bhav really comes and what causes certain emotions really becomes a bigger center stage now from my very particular archives i have found that when one is think when one is looking at genres which are not just illustrated poetry um that is talking about specific um you know aestheticized uh you know these these systematic rasas what i'm finding is that the emphasis in that sense is more on bhav is more on uh, which can be applied which is more which seems to be more porous at least that's how it's treated that it can be applied to a vari- variety of things and it's this porosity that in a way uh, is what i have found and in a way which i found applied to place and time that enables me to get into the history that i'm getting into so it's, it's, it's a specific shift which is historicized thank you so much um dipti we've run out of time thank you so much for the conversation today it just we've just scraped the surface of your work and i encourage people to indeed check out your book the place of many moods but also i should let our audience know that you've been working on a what i assume is quite major exhibition at the smithsonian in washington dc when does that open dipti yeah thank you so much for that plug uh, it <laughs> opens november 19 2022 and okay. uh, it will be in washington dc for 6 months 
until the middle of May 2023, and then it will travel to the Cleveland Museum of Art for another three months. And that's where in an exhibition format, we are actually really trying to think about the question of sensing histories uh, in terms of the works and themes that goes beyond what is covered in the place of many moods. Uh, but it's also really trying to think about what does it mean to bring the sensory into an exhibition space and to historicize it for contemporary viewers. That that question that you asked between, you know, this kind of interest in affect that is there in art history and museums and immersiveness. How do you how do you have the conversation with that also through uh, specificities and how do you evoke it and how does that change uh, objects that have not been exhibited actually in this format ever before? Happy to talk about that more at another time. I realize we are over time. Sounds fantastic, <laughs> and I there's a I'm assuming a catalog that comes with it. Yeah, yeah. It must be an interesting experience to be able to return in a way to you know to your earlier project and and. But, but at a later time, if you know what I mean, with a little more reflection. And it'd be interesting to read the book and the catalogue side by side and see how you've shifted your own thinking in yeah. that, in that yeah, yeah. There's that. I also like your choice of word to call it interesting when I'm in the middle of somehow trying to meet that deadline. <laughs> All I think of is sleeplessness and I'm going to call that interesting tonight. <laughs> well, everybody, everybody will look out for it with that in mind now. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been a great pleasure, and I've learned an awful lot about India and Indian culture just from the conversation and from reading about your reading your work. So, it's been a, a really good experience for me. Thank you so much. And likewise, thank you so much. Thank you again for the opportunity, and I look forward to continuing the conversations with your students. It's great to see so many of them here. Great. Okay. Thank you. Bye.